I hope you have all had a great day celebrating Father's Day. I know this day can be a really fun day. It was a fun day for me and for my family. But I understand that for some people, Father's Day can be quite a painful day. It can be a day that brings up bad memories of, of family, of our, of our fathers. And I want, to, I want to acknowledge that. And I want to say that this is a great place for you to be here on Father's Day. Because we have a heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us, and who never fails us or lets us down. And that's a great place to be in his presence. So how about we pray as we look at this passage to our Heavenly Father. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can be in your presence right now. And that means that we are loved, that you care for us, that you want us to to grow more in understanding of who you are in your Son. And we pray, Lord, as we look at this wonderful passage tonight, that you would be challenging us and challenging our heart to make you Lord of our life and to know that there is very good news for us and for our world. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. When Katie and I were in uh, America, we met a lot of interesting people. So many interesting people. We had one particular Lyft driver, he, he, like Uber, uh, who told us where to get the best weed in LA, pretty much. He said LA is the best place for weed in the United States, and he, he told us where to get the best weed in LA as well. And so we were thinking, wow, this is insane. He's just going out telling us where to get the best weed. So we met some very interesting people in America. One of those people was our Lyft driver, our Uber driver. Uh, we all, but perhaps the most interesting people we met weren't, weren't actually Americans. They were Australians. We were in Palm Springs on our last night staying at the Ace Hotel, and we were playing uh, trivia, and in walking these two Australians, this couple together, and they came and sat at our table, and we got to meet them, and we got talking and chatting, and they were from Melbourne, and we asked them, what do you do for a living? And that's where the conversation got really interesting. You see, the girlfriend, she was a psychic, a healer of sorts. And so she runs for a business, so she was just starting a business in doing spirit, mind, body events in Melbourne and hopefully expanding to Sydney as well. She was launching her Instagram account as well for these events to, be, to promote healing and spiritual welfare and all that kind of thing. And her boyfriend was a salesman for Microsoft, so pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> but... He is also a little bit psychic, to use his own words. He's a little bit psychic. He sees auras around people. So when he, when he first saw me and Katie, he said, oh, I saw auras around you two. And we're like, oh, really? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, well, what were they? And he said, well, you had a blue aura, which means speech and leadership. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And then Katie had a green aura, which was charity and love and compassion. And I was like, that sounds fantastic. That's just like us. And I said, this is really strange. And so I thought I would share what I would do, I, I, what I do. And I, was, I told them I was a pastor of a church, I was a minister, and I work uh, telling people about who Jesus is and about the Bible. And they loved it. But the first thing they said was, you're so young to be an Anglican minister. That's so strange. I don't get it. And so I had to explain to them, yes, yes, I know. It's, it's a bit strange, I know. But that's what I do for a living. Now, they weren't at all opposed to Jesus. In fact, the girlfriend, the, the one who's a, who wants to be a psychic and healer, she told me that one time she went and saw a spiritual healer. Uh, not Christian, a, a psychic spiritual healer. And he told her, because what he was trying to do is he was trying to, she was trying to cast out bad energy in her life. And the technique that she was work, using wasn't really working anymore. And so she went to this healer and to find out you know, what's another technique she can use or who she can ask to help her. And the healer told her, you should ask Jesus. You should call on the name of Jesus to help you cast out this bad energy, these bad spirits, and uh, he will help you. And she thought, that's a little bit religious. That's a little bit strange. Why do I, why do, I do that? 
But she tried it, and hey, it worked. She called on the name of Jesus, and all the bad vibes and bad energy in her life left her, and all the good stuff came in, and she felt really, really good. You see, she discovered that Jesus could be this personal force that would help her and give her power against bad vibes in her life. She liked Jesus because Jesus fits it into her framework of reality. She fits it, he fitted into her core values of what life was about and how she perceived life. Many people are like this girl I met. They love Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus because he expresses the same values they express of their worldview. He's seen as a role model, a spiritual guide, a personal force, a guru in our world. You know, he's on the same level as Muhammad and Gandhi and Buddha and Dr. Phil and Oprah. Like he's on the same level as these people who offer their expertise on life and help us, helping us to get through life and make life good. But here's the thing. Just because people say they know Jesus or they like Jesus, well, I think he's a good guy and a guru. It doesn't mean they actually know who he is at all. And it doesn't mean he has the proper place he ought to have in their life. When Paul writes to the church in Colossae, this is perhaps the most pressing issue that they have. They've lost sight of who Jesus truly is. They've lost sight of the proper place he should hold in their life. And so Paul writes not to chastise them, but to remind them why Jesus ought to be the epicenter of their faith and life, to increase their vision of why Jesus is so good and so awesome. In a way, the world in Colossae and our world today have a narrow lens to look at Jesus. But Paul wants to expand that and give us a panoramic lens to look through, to see Jesus for who he really is, lest we miss him. Now, who here knows what a panoramic photo is? If you have an iPhone, you'll know what it is. You know, in, 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 in like, probably like three or four years ago, it were all the rage, panoramic photos. Everyone was taking them because it just came out on the iPhone. And uh, I'll show you, I'll give you a demonstration. So pretty much what a panoramic photo allows you to do is that you can capture more scenery all in one photo and then a normal photo wouldn't let you do. So pretty much you get your phone out, you go to your, your no, don't do that. Then you go to your camera app. Sorry, I should have prepared this a little bit earlier. And you hold it up and you scan across and you make sure it's nice and straight so you don't chop anyone's head off. And then bang, you've got yourself a pano photo, a panoramic photo that allows you to capture in more of the scenery around you than a normal photo would otherwise. That is what Paul is trying to do here in this chapter, in this particular section to the Colossians. He's trying to increase their vision, their scope to see who Jesus really is, lest they miss him for a narrow view of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here. He's widening our scope. So with that in mind, let's jump into this passage and let's get the full picture of who Jesus really is. In my sermon tonight, we broke it into two main points. Our first point is that Jesus is the Lord of creation. And the second point is that Jesus is the Lord of redemption. So firstly, Jesus is the Lord of creation. Look at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Paul doesn't hold back. He just unleashes this vision of Jesus onto us straight away. And there are four things we can note straight off the back. Firstly, we see he is the image of the invisible God. That's really important to note at this point. You see, every ancient god in the ancient world had their own image, whether it was a statue or a temple or a painting or books or coins. Their images were everywhere. And so you knew what Zeus looked like. You knew what Apollo looked like. You knew what Poseidon looked like because the images were just scattered all over the place. But the most incredible thing about Jesus was that he was the image of the God who cannot be seen. He was the image of the invisible God. Now, Paul doesn't mean that God had a cloaking device on him, that he couldn't be picked up on God's radar, that he had you know, Harry Potter's invisibility cloak around him. No, rather, Paul is get, what he's getting at is that no one can see God in this world because God can't be contained by this world. If you wanted to see Zeus, you would go to Mount Olympia. That's where he was. If you wanted to see Apollo, you go to the temple of Apollo. That's where he was. These gods, these Greek gods, were tied to their locality. They were tied to this creation. They were a part of it because, in, in fact, though they were gods, they were still creaturely. They were still made by something greater. But the God of the Bible is not tied to creation or confined by it. No, he is the creator. And he stands beyond it, outside of it, too big to be contained by it. And that is why he is the invisible God, because he transcends space and time itself. He can't be seen. And yet what's amazing is that although this is all true, someone has come who is able to contain himself the glory and the majesty and the vastness of who this invisible God is. As the God-man, as Jesus, this carpenter who walked around Galilee was the image of the all-transcendent and powerful creator of this world, of the God who is invisible. That is incredible. Jesus himself is a walking panoramic photo of God himself. And that really rightly leads to the second thing that to be given the title of the firstborn of creation, back in there in verse 15. And this is not to suggest that he was the first creature made by God. If Jesus were a creaturely being, if he were made by God in some sense tied to this creation, he would be no different to the Greek or Roman gods in the ancient world. And more importantly, he could not be the image of the invisible God. No, Jesus is something else altogether. He is the transcendent God coming to create creation. And so Paul gives the title firstborn not to suggest that he was created, but to signify his supremacy and authority and his power. You see, in the same way that the firstborn son received the most inheritance in Jewish culture, Jesus, as the one who has come from God, as God the Son, is the firstborn in that he receives the most authority. And the most power, indeed, he is the most powerful and the one with most authority. There's no one who measures up to Jesus. He is the firstborn. He's not the same as the ancient gods. There is no equivalent. He is not like Gandhi or Muhammad or Oprah. He is categorically altogether different. You can't compare him. And so therefore, Paul goes on, thirdly, we read again, we read that all things were created in him, thrones and powers and dominions, authorities and governments. 
The entire universe was made through Christ. He was involved as God's instrument, so to speak, in making all things. And then we read, fourthly, that he is the one who holds all things together. Through him all things were made, and through him all things are sustained. The earth continues to spin on its axis because Christ holds it up. The sun continues to burn because Christ fuels it. We continue to breathe. Every breath we take tonight is because Christ has given us that breath, because he is holding our lungs and our very lives together. Science might you know, be able to explain why things happen, why our world exists and how it works, but Paul reveals what's happening behind it. He reveals that what's going on is not simply a perfectly balanced creation that God has somehow just made, winded up, and then left it to work. No, the only way for this creation to be able to keep going, for life to continue to exist, as we see here, is that if the God of the creation, the Lord of creation himself, would be so intimately involved with his creation, holding all things together, that's who Jesus is. He is intimately sustaining all of life, whether you call him your Lord and Savior or not. That's his role, that's what he's doing here. No ancient god, guru, or spiritual advisor has that kind of power, the power to sustain all things and keep all of life going. And so therefore, Jesus cannot be placed in the same category that our world would place him in. But we shouldn't think that just because we're the church that we always get this right, that we always properly hold him up as Lord and Savior. When you look at your life, does Jesus have the title of Lord at every single moment? Paul presents a picture of Christ being at the epicenter of all of life as the Lord of creation. And so the question is, is he your Lord at every moment in your life? Or is he a butler, a guru, a spiritual advisor, a good role model for you to follow? When the pressure is on from the outside, do you attempt to make him fit into your worldview, the worldview of your friends or your colleagues or your family, so he becomes more palpable, more palatable, more likable, and therefore easier for you to have the best of both worlds, Christian and then also non-Christian worldview as well? Can I admit, I did this this week. I got my hair cut on Wednesday. I hope you've noticed that. And, uh, and the barber, he was an apprentice actually, so he did a good job, I hope. So you can let me know later. Um, he, he, told, he asked me, what are you doing tonight? And Wednesday night, growth group night. And so instead of being bold, though, and saying, yeah, I've got growth group on tonight. It's a Bible study. I'm a pastor of a church. I love meeting with God's people. Everyone's going to have to pray and read the Bible because Jesus is Lord. Instead of saying that, I said to him, oh, yeah, I'm just like, you know, hanging out with some friends and we're going to read the Bible. Like, I kind of work at church as well. And I'm pretty much going to ask, we're going to read the Bible together and talk about it and, and look at what it means for us. In that moment, I didn't deny Jesus as Lord, but he wasn't Lord of my life still. I didn't deny that I believed in him, but he became my spiritual advisor, my guru my role model, my butler. I fitted him into my framework of thinking so that my barber wouldn't question me any further. I wouldn't have to be all awkward about you know, trying to work out how I explain Jesus being Lord of my life. And I was preparing for this sermon. I realized I had to repent of my sin 
Because in that moment, Christ was not Lord. Perhaps you can empathize with me here. Perhaps there are moments in your life where you know you don't put Christ as Lord at first. Perhaps you don't even mention that he is Lord of your life to people. Perhaps when people ask you, what are you doing this weekend? You focus more on the errands you've got to do. You focus more on hanging out with friends outside of church. And you forget to mention that all-important fact that uh, you get to meet with the, the Lord of heaven and earth every Sunday night and hear of his love and grace and mercy and hope for life. Here's the thing. We're not only giving Jesus the wrongful place in our life as a butler or a guru, but when we don't give him that proper place, we're also stopping our world from having any chance of hearing the hope and the goodness and the love that comes from knowing Jesus Christ, not as a good role model, but as Lord, the Lord of creation, the Lord of life. And so to help us to remember to keep this panoramic vision of who Jesus is as Lord, Paul moves on to encourage us that the reason why having Jesus is so good, having him as Lord, is not only because he is the Lord of creation, but because he is also the Lord of redemption. And this is my second point for tonight. Look at verses 18 to 20. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul uses the same language as before to make it really, really crystal clear that Jesus is not only the Lord of creation, but the one who has the power to restore creation from the power of sin and death, thus making him the Lord of redemption, the Lord of creation's renewal. You see, just as Jesus is the image of God and contains the fullness of God in verse 19, just as Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he is also the firstborn of the dead. Just as Jesus is the one in whom all things were made and hold together, he's also the one in whom he will reconcile all things in verse 20 as well. Thus, the, poor, the point Paul is making is that if Jesus is the Lord of creation, then only he has the power to bring about its restoration as the Lord of redemption. Once again, Paul is widening our scope to show us what it takes to defeat sin and evil that we can't do it on our own. No amount of worship to other gods like Zeus or Apollo will do it. No amount of spells or magic for that back then will defeat sin and evil. No amount of good works or education or progress in our political system or good vibes or loving actions in our day will be enough to redeem this world. No amount of Dr. Phil can help you. The only one who can reconcile creation is the one who made it and is Lord over it. Yet our world just believes otherwise, that we can overcome it ourselves. And there's just plenty of self-help gurus and manuals out there in our digital age that will tell you that it can. As long as you have a proper balance or a right mix of exercise, diet, meditation, good friends, uh, good deeds and purpose in your life, you will somehow become a better person and therefore make a better world. To borrow from Paul, that we'll be able to hold all things together in our life. Interestingly, 
I think that's wrong. If we're honest, we know that our outward appearance of a healthy, balanced life, full of good deeds and, and positive Instagram posts, don't necessarily reflect the stat- status of our heart. We still have a bitterness and anger towards each other. We still know that our thoughts and desires are not always good and healthy. We still feel jealousy and dissatisfaction, even though we pretend otherwise. And if we're really honest, we worry about the future and what it holds for us. As people around us suffer, as we attend funerals of loved ones, we realize more and more our grip on life is loose. Kay and I woke up on yesterday morning, Saturday morning, and she was flicking through Instagram stories, and she saw a story that kind of shook her for a moment. It was a story of a friend providing a tribute to a girl who said, rest in peace. And Kay knew that girl as someone that she led on Christian surfers. She had died two days before in an accident overseas. And it just shook us because it shook Katie even more because she knew her personally. And you look at her Instagram four days earlier, she was looking forward to coming home. Death teaches us about the fragility of life. That sin and death is not something that we can you know, stop in its tracks on our own effort. And so although our world would tell us we can hold everything, everything together, we only need to reflect a little to realize that there is a greater force at work, one that we can't control, one that we can't stop coming towards us. And that is why Paul widens our scope. He's, he helps us to see just how big the problem is, but he widens it even further to see how big our hope is. Because whilst we are powerless to do anything, Jesus Christ is the one who is the Lord of creation and therefore he is the one who holds all things together and that by his death on the cross and his resurrection, he is making all things new. His place as Lord of your life is not simply his rightful place. It's the best place he can have in your life. It is the best place for hope in your life. What we struggle to fix by ourselves or about our world, Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross has fixed and is fixing for you. If you're someone tonight who struggles with with sin and guilt and shame in your life, Jesus has given you forgiveness on offer for you to have. If you struggle with pain and sickness in your body, Jesus is going to give you a new body. He's going to make that new for you. If you're someone who struggles to keep everything together, you feel like your life is just falling apart, Jesus holds on to your life and promises you eternal life. For all who call on Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved and have confidence of eternal life with him. As Lord, not as guru, not as a role model, as Lord. The temptation for us in our post-Christian world is to make him fit comfortably into our worldview or the worldview of those around us to make him seem more likable, more palpable to people. But to do such is not to honor Christ, it's to devalue him. To do such is not to give hope, it's to take it away from people, to take it away from yourself. 
Paul explains in verses 21 to 22 how this affects us personally. He says that what Christ has done for us as the Lord of creation, as the Lord of redemption, is that he has brought you from evil. You who were once evil and alienated from God, he has brought you from that place to a place where you are being made holy and made perfect in him. And he says in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Brothers and sisters, the faith that we are to continue in, the hope that we have heard is simple. Christ is Lord. He's not a guru. He's not your role model. He's not just simply your best friend, a good guy. He is Lord. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of redemption. And all those who trust in him will be saved. 